Welcome to the fourth and final of our special review shows looking back over the 2017 ATP World Tour. We've already relived the very best on clay, grass and hard courts. Those podcasts still available to download, but we rejoin the story nearing the end of August and the last major of the year. Of course, the US Open. There were to be twists and turns aplenty, starting before the tournament began, with Andy Murray announcing that he'd not recovered from his hip injury, and so joining a list of sidelined stars that now included Stan Wawrinka, Novak Djokovic, Kane Ishikori, Milos Raonic and Thomas Birdie. There were also question marks over Roger Federer, after he'd been a late withdrawal from the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, and that's where I started when I spoke with his former coach, Paul Anacone. I didn't get to talk to Roger, just had a little chat with uh, Severin Luti. And, you know, at this stage of his career, you know, I think when you have slight issues with the body, particularly last year having surgery, he just wants to make sure he gives himself his best chance to be ready for the U.S. Open. I was talking about it uh, with someone yesterday in the locker room um, in the player lounge area, and it's amazing. You know, you look at everything that's happened kind of since Wimbledon. You know, you look at you look at Novak and Andy K's now out, and Stan's out, and Milos is out, and you know, it's it's incredible. And I wonder how much of it is the switch of surface from grass to clay. How much it is just a cumulative effect of a long season and a long career. Um, and the accumulative effect of just playing a lot of tennis. And some of these guys are getting a little bit older now. So I wonder if they're a little more vulnerable. And then the last part of that equation and question mark really is, you know, as major events get closer, players are a little more sensitive and they get a little more nervous. So some of it is preventative as well. And one of those players who is here, uh, Rafa, um, so too Sasha Zverev, who is obviously in this hugely rich vein of form, I said it this morning, almost an unthinkable question to ask a few months ago, but which of these guys are you expecting more of here on this surface? Yeah, it's amazing. Sasha Zverev has just catapulted the summer into the hardcourt scene. Look, we knew he was a great player, and we've seen the meteoric rise up the ranks, and now he's knocking on the door to the greatest of the greats. He's really ready to break through. Uh, and by breakthrough, to me, that means semifinals or winning a major. And that's kind of the next step for him. He's got two Masters 1000s under his belt now. Um, so for Sasha, it's going to be an interesting next few weeks. And Rafa, Rafa's Rafa. So you can't not expect great things for him. Um, he's really come into great form this year. It's been amazing to watch the resurgence of uh, both Rafa and Roger. And I think it's great for the game. Um, and no one's competitive spirit kind of flows more freely and more jubilantly than Rafa Nadal. So to see him at the top of the game again is really a treat. Paul, I'm going to ask you to reminisce. You've presided over I guess so many hard court matches as both a coach or a pundit is there one that sticks out here in the states a hard court match 
Um, you know, there's been a bunch of them. There's been some great memories, and there's been some shocking ones, too. You know, I saw Roger lose in the semifinals twice as his coach holding match points against Novak, which is hard to watch because, you know, you feel for your player. And, and you know, one let cord that he hit that bounced back on his side, one slap shot from Novak, um, those were tough to see. Um, I had a couple of moments that I really remember playing John McEnroe at the U.S. Open. I was able to win a match there when he was just trying to get back into form, so I caught him at a good moment for me. Um, and, and then, you know, Pete's victories at the U.S. Open, beating Michael Chang in the finals, beating um, Alex Karecha in the quarterfinals when he was ill. That was pretty emotional. And I think in 1995, when, when Pete beat Andre, that was pretty spectacular in the finals. But they all have their own little niche in time and their little special place in my mind. And, and maybe some of them kind of culminate to the moment where Pete was able to come back in 2002 and win that tournament where people really didn't expect that. Um, that, to me, was really the epitome of seeing what great champions can do when they put their minds to something. Um, so I got a lot of special moments. And I wish more of them were with me playing, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ride the coattails of the other great players. It's been fun. Well, just finally, you mentioned the players and, and your career, you know, across your playing career and your coaching career spanned such a long time. I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying that. Which, which are the, the best players out there on hard? I mean, if you had to pick five. Well, um, and for me, you know, just to, the era has changed in terms of the speed of the surface, the weight of the ball and the style of play. And I don't like combining the eras that much. But, you know, if you, if you really want to go through them, you know, you, you have to look at Novak's domination on hard courts for those three years was spectacular. Rogers was pretty amazing from, you know, 2004 to kind of 2010, maybe a little bit earlier, 2008. Um, Rafa's resurgence, Rafa's kind of ascension onto hard courts when he, those three, this era has been really spectacular when you see how well those guys have played on this surface. And let's not forget about Andy Murray, you know, winning the U.S. Open and playing so well on the hard courts, uh, winning the Olympics last year, gold medal on hard courts. So you can go on and on just with this era. And if you want to sprinkle in some of the other guys in the other eras, you've got to go with Pete and Andre, were spectacular. And then you've got to go with Lendl, Lendl and McEnroe. I mean, Lendl, I believe, was in the finals of the U.S. Open eight years in a row. So that's a pretty, fun, I mean, eight years in a row in the finals of the U.S. Open. That's amazing. So sprinkle those together, and I'll let all you guys debate as to who goes where, but it's been quite a 30 years or so of tennis. Paul Anacone there reflecting, among other things, on the drama unfolding even before it all started at Flushing Meadows. And that same narrative continued into week one with the bottom half of the draw decimated. Early defeats for former champion Marin Cilic and a red-hot Sasha Zverev leaving Gigi Salmon's podcast guest, U.S. writer and broadcaster Nick McCarville, perplexed. Yeah, it was interesting to see because once things happened, obviously, with Murray, that was its own beast, but things got complicated in the bottom half of the draw, and then people pinned it on Chilich, and earlier they pinned it on Sasha Zverev, the number four seed. This was supposed to be his breakout slam, having won in Montreal, beaten Roger Federer in the final, but actually, Gigi, both Chilich and... Zverev lost on grandstand and to be honest I, I watched most of those matches courtside I just don't feel like any of them took advantage of the moment and not to say listen you're going to play your best tennis every day but both Chorich who beat Zverev and Schwartzman who beat Chilich they were steady 
they were strong in the moment and and they outplayed those guys and, and these are the moments that you want these guys to step up the guys outside of the big four like listen here's your moment and i just don't think they did but others were looking to capitalize having come through qualifying 18 year old denis shapovalov was again showing the kind of form that took him to the semi-finals in montreal daniel medvedev joe wilfred songa and Kyle Edmund all fell to the young Canadian before he finally lost to an inspired Pablo Carreño Buster in the fourth round. After a career-changing few weeks, our reporter Matt Brown sought the views of Canada National Training Centre coach Louis Borfiga and the young man himself. My parents, being from uh, from Eastern Europe, uh, they're more into tennis than hockey, but uh, obviously uh, it was tough to pick. I never myself played hockey but I always wanted to um, but you know having a mom that played played tennis uh, it helped me lead toward tennis. How much better are you uh, how much wiser are you perhaps uh, with the experience of being out on the ATP world tour? Yeah definitely I mean uh, in, in, in a tennis world a year is a lot of time and you know I just feel a lot more mature and I feel like a, a different a different person a different player than I was a year ago and uh, uh, it's a new year, and uh, hopefully I could do it again. How would you describe your style of game? I try to be aggressive. You know, I really go for my serves and my forehands. Um, try to come in a lot, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think I have a lot of variation. I can uh, I can grind when I need to, but uh, obviously I, I try to be aggressive. A big thing about tennis is clearly the mental game. Is that one of your strengths, uh, mentally tough? Yeah, I think uh, I've, really, I've really worked with Marty a lot to improve on that, and, uh I've gotten pretty mentally tough over the past couple of months, and uh, yeah, I think I think that's what's been helping me win a lot of matches recently. And uh, you know, I'm I've I've still got a lot long way to go uh, by you know with improving that. But uh, yeah, I think I've, I've I've improved a lot on that point. Oh, I like a lot of things about Dennis. I like uh, I like his game because I, for me it's very important to have a, you know to have a good technique to, to have. That's very important for the to have no limit with in you know, a technical side, and also I like his mentality. You know, he's, he's, he's playing on the center court, but he's playing with. He enjoys to play on the center court, and he, 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 he's very good. You know, to have a good level when he needs a good level. That's for I like a lot of things in Dennis for sure. In the bottom half of the draw in New York, America's Sam Query was carrying on the kind of form that had taken him all the way to the Wimbledon semi-finals. We heard from his coach, Craig Boynton. He's had a, a great season. Um, he's getting better, and he's moving in the direction that when we sat down at the beginning of the year and had the vision, okay, you got to look to do a couple these things a little bit better, and he's and he's getting better at those. And as you get better, your game gets better, and it kind of snowballs. And you know this tricky little thing like called confidence. Um, which is so hard to gather, and it seems like at sometimes it can be so it could just disappear. But for Sam, he's done a great job. I think he really, truly, deep down believes how good he is and the potential of how good he can be. Query's run halted in the quarterfinals by another man finding form at just the right time. And after a year and a half plagued by injury, South Africa's Kevin Anderson then beat Pablo Carreño Busta to make his first Grand Slam final. Yeah, well, it really started all the way back, you know, in January of 2016 in, you know, in uh, right in the beginning of the year, I played the um, um, the event in, uh, um, you know, Abu Dhabi and then, you know, didn't feel great there. Then unfortunately I had to pull out of, uh, you know, Chennai, 
you know, end up playing Australia, had to withdraw there too. And, uh, you know, that's, it sort of started with the knee and then it progressed to the shoulder, had to miss um, Indian Wells in Miami. Um, and then when I started playing in the, in the clay, the hip was pretty bad. I was, you know, I was, I, was, I was playing the tournaments, but, you know, taking three or four days off between each tournament and, uh, you know, you know, doing quite a bit just, just to get on the court. And, um, you know, during the summer, you know, I felt pretty healthy. And then towards the end of the year, you know, the, uh, the right hip went and that's what caused me to miss the end of the end, the beginning of 2017. And, uh, you know, I think one of the lessons I learned was, uh, you know, it was one of those things that something was hurt, and I ended up compensating um, with other parts of my body. And you know, that's what tennis is, you know, is like. So, you know, example, if my you know, knee sore, then I may be putting you know more stress through my shoulder because I'm not using my legs as well. It, sort of the snowball effect happens. So that was one of the reasons I missed out on you know, decided not to go to Australia and you know, New Zealand this year um, because you know, after the hip, I wanted to make sure that I was 100%. And uh, you know, even if you're at 90%, you know, you often put your body at risk, um, you know, you know, in other areas. So, you know, but since then I've been healthy and, uh, you know, it was a tough 2016, but, you know, I hope, you know, I think I learned some, uh, some important lessons. Yeah, for those people listening who don't know, Kevin, you gradually worked your way up to the point where you, you broke into the top 10 at one stage before the injuries, you know, some would say right in the prime of your career too, although when you look at what people like Federer and Nadal are still doing you know you've got many more years to come if you stay fit and healthy but that's a key part of tennis isn't it managing your body managing your schedule so that you 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 keep those sort of injuries to a minimum yeah definitely and I feel like you know I've really tried to pay a lot of attention to that um you know especially with my schedule the amount of time I um you know I spend with my treatment and my rehab and everything and it was just a tough lesson as I said earlier I just you know I was obviously you want to get out there and play and you know I think one of the lessons I took from you know 2016 was just knowing when to say no and as tough as it is to miss tournaments sometimes it is the right decision and you've seen that a couple guys obviously you know Roger last year I'm sure he would have loved to play the tournaments and it was a very difficult decision for him not to but sometimes that you know that is a you know, that can be a good decision, especially in the long, you know, in your longevity and keeping your body healthy. You know, again, if, you know, hopefully I won't have to take extended periods of time off, but if I do, I think also, again, I've learned a, a few valuable lessons from this whole stretch that, uh, you know, might be very useful um, to me in the future. In the top half of the draw, next-gen star Andrei Rublev was fast making a name for himself, beating Grigor Dimitrov and then David Goffin to face the new world number one, Rafael Nadal in the quarters. And in the build-up, Gabriel Clark caught up with the young Russian for ATP World Tour Uncovered. Everything is step by step. Of course, I feel much better, I feel much comfortable, I feel more confidence. Now is the moment when uh, I'm going to play main tournaments with uh, good players, top players. I have uh, good chances to fight uh, with these guys to win one, two matches and I have to be ready 100% 100% every match because to, to compete with them is it's really tough and you have to be ready. But still it's a long way to go, uh, still a lot of things to improve and we'll see what's going to happen. Andre is coached by Spaniard Fernando Vicente. The former world number 29 has brought a lot to the young Russians game. Fernando is a little bit... Uh, when a tight situation he always puts some jokes to make it more uh, easy. When you see him on court, it looks very aggressive and very crazy. But uh, out of the court, it's a very nice guy. We have fun. He's great with people, so he creates that kind of environment that uh, I think helps him a lot. Fernando is he's really smart about shot selection, tactics. 
so he brings a lot to that. The key for him was to be able to perform on the highest level for a longer period of time. And he don't really think about the uh, tactic part of the game. So that's the most important thing that we work with him. The way he has very nice shots, but he needs to know the way to use it. His limit, you don't have limit because he's very young, he, he has everything to improve. Our job is to work every day, as hard as possible, try to have a good mentality. So, well, we decided to, to, to do preparation. Well, I think uh, the team was working really great and hard, and I think myself also, I was trying to push myself. And uh, now we're still working a lot in his fitness part. Now he, he's fitter, so if he can keep his level for three, four hours, he can beat anybody out there. In July, Andre broke through to win his first career title in Umag. The Russian became just the seventh player in history to win an ATP World Tour title as a lucky loser. It was an amazing feeling to win my ATP title. I mean, of course, uh, I think every player wants to do this and they're playing for to win these tournaments, to win ATP, to win Masters, to win Grand Slams, so it was amazing. I mean, Andre finished number one in the world when he was junior and the expectations to him is uh, a lot. And it's not easy to manage these uh, things. I can make a good matches, I can make a good victories, but I was not putting you know, pressure to myself. I have to do it before uh, the season is over or something. I didn't put some goals to me to win title or to finish somewhere. I was thinking that I'm going to try to do my best. And he won his first ITP tournament. I mean, it was a big surprise for me because he won on clay court. He don't really like clay almost first or second round. And I was thinking that uh, clay is not for me. And at the end, he started to lose a lot in clay. And it was a big surprise for us. But in my opinion, it was a little bit earlier because I never expect this, this uh, title this year. He, he was playing really well. He has time to run around and hit this big forehand. And any day when it's on, it, he, is, he is so tough to Play. But in the end I won the title and I feel so comfortable to play on clay and now I understand that I also can play on clay. Rublev battled but Nadal prevailed, doing his bit to produce a first ever meeting between himself and Roger Federer at Flushing Meadows. But true to form, the script was ripped up, Federer falling to Juan Martín del Potro the Flushing Meadow jinx lasting one more year. Nadal would beat the giant Argentine and then go on to overwhelm Kevin Anderson for the loss of just 10 games to claim his 16th Grand Slam title and the second in his first season working with Carlos Moya. It's improving every day. I think there has been an evolution and it's good for him to to get the wins, so that gives, gives him a lot of confidence. The best thing of Rafa is that when he has not been playing well, he still somehow found a way to, to win those matches. And, and you know, that, that's good for a player of, of this caliber. It's good to get these matches. And then once they're in the quarters, they, they are really dangerous. His motivation results at the beginning of the year were very important. He's been injury free, so all this Things combined, that's the reason that we've seen a good Rafa this year, I believe. He's been competing really well since the beginning of the year. Then sometimes he played well, he didn't play that well some other times, but still he, he kept competing well. Uh, on the clay court season, again, some matches were not that good, but he won those matches and, and he had the chance to, to play next matches and then ended up winning the, those tournaments, playing really well. And then the last couple of 
couple of months uh, after the clay were not that good. But it's normal, it's not easy to play uh, at this level for the whole year. Well, try to be aggressive, stay solid at the same time, having the same attitude. And like I said, at the beginning of the, of the tournament, was not, uh, he was not that confident, but he won a couple of matches that uh, didn't play well. But he turned things around, and, and once he, he gets those wins, uh, he's much more confident. And a change of continent did nothing to halt the Nadal juggernaut. Asia started well. Nadal prepares the serve. Taken on the backhand, it's out of play. The return is wide. Arms aloft, Nadal celebrates. China Open champion for the second time. His second title here, 12 years after his first. He pats Kyrgios on the back, who congratulates him warmly. But disappointment for the Australian today. He just could not play in the way he wanted. He let things get into his head early and never found a way back from that. And Rafa was ruthless. He is deservedly the champion, the world number one, claiming his sixth title of the year, 6-2, 6-1. In Tokyo, meanwhile, David Goffin was getting back to his best. 40 love, championship points, serves to the backhand of Manorino and wide, his head goes down. Goffin points both his hands towards the sky. He shakes his fist, he is finally a champion in Japan. He wins his ninth match on the bounce. He wins back-to-back ATP Tour titles. He is a man in form. Goffin victorious and heading for the penultimate Masters 1000 of the year in Shanghai, he was one of many still in contention for the final positions at the Nito ATP Finals in London. One of the lesser-known stories arriving in Shanghai was the emergence of new 17-year-old Chinese tennis sensation Wu Yibing. Singles and doubles junior champion at the US Open, he received a wildcard to his home event and went toe-to-toe with France's Gilles Simon in the opening round. For me, it was a great experience and I can finally play lots of great players and I enjoy a lot. The way he play, I think I can learn a lot. I think I'm a little bit nervous, and because this stadium, it was it was so big, and I got a little bit confusing inside. And after I try to recover my tennis with my serve and baseline, try to hit more rallies. And I I think I doing well in some some shots. Yeah. For those people that haven't seen you play, how would you describe your game? I think I like to play more baseline and I want to go more volleys. I try to fast my rhythm and I try to move my opponent move. Yeah. Have you modelled your game on anybody else watching as, as a young kid growing up? Is there someone that you think, I want to be like him? Mm, no, actually, because I, I want to like make my style. So I want to catch my, my point in tennis, yeah. You became the first Chinese player to win a US Open junior title uh, in singles and doubles. Just tell us about the experience in New York. Mm, that was great. At first, I didn't think I can win both. I tried to keep my focus on singles. But day by day, I, I think maybe I have a chance to win both. And after I win doubles, it's a lot of confidence for, for, for me in singles final. So yeah. You're 17. How has that experience and what you achieved changed your life? I think I, I don't think this changed my life, but I think it was a great moment of my life. Yeah, and I 
I try to picture my future like I can be better after this good result, and mm. I think if I working hard, I have chance. Yeah. You started tennis at a very young age. I think you were four when your parents got you involved. What What are your earliest memories of playing tennis? Uh, that was losing weight, I think, <laughs> because <laughs> I I'm a little bit fatty <laughs> when I'm young. And later, I I got a uh, Zhejiang team. It's like promised team. Mm-hmm. They they led me to play like professional tennis. And finally, I I play professional tennis. For me, it's it's like one of my dream. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the way, I think. And you were taken out of China at a, at a very young age too to go and I think you went to academies in Spain. Yeah. Uh, so whereabouts did you did you sort of learn your skills on the clay courts in Spain? Uh, actually, I don't really like clay courts, but <laughs> I try to learn and I try to adapt. And my my coach let me um, practice more on clay because he said it's very useful for juniors players, and it's nice to working on patience, mm-hmm. working on full work on that. And I I think. Yeah, if I have chance, I, I will go to Spain again, yeah. When you look at the growth of tennis in Asia, we know what Kane Shikori has done yeah. and, and Sugita coming through in Japan. There are players, um, you know, coming through in lots of different Asian countries and, and in China you are the next big thing. Uh, how do you deal with the expectation? I think from the player, you, you tell me Nishikori and Sugita and seeing I can learn so many things from them, the fast rhythms, fast legs mm-hmm. and... I think that the different in Asian players, they have different talent. Maybe the European player is more bigger, but I think we, we got like some skills, some rhythm yeah, mm-hmm. advantage. Yeah. What do you think are the things that you have to do? Uh, is, is it a case of being more physical? Uh, do you need yeah. to develop that side of your game? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work in so hard in the gym because when I play with, like, when I play in juniors, it's a lot of players like don't look like juniors. <laughs> They're so strong, and I feel like my power in baseline is just enough. But in serve and return, that was like big distance. And where did you learn English? Because a lot of Chinese kids your age probably don't speak much English. Was that when you went overseas to, uh, to Spain, yeah. or just out on the uh, junior tour? We we have like uh, class for English, and sometimes my mom teach me because she has a very nice university. And I try to talk with my foreign coach because I I'm not shy. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah. So my coach also tell me about how to learn English, some technique. <laughs> what other uh, interests do you have outside of tennis to get the balance between your work, which is your tennis, and and your play? Uh, I like music and basketball. Yeah, I I enjoy to watch NBA. Yeah, that was great. I hear you're a good singer. Can you give can you give us a can you give us a demonstration here on ATP Tennis Radio? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> what sort of music do you like? I like Chinese Chinese music. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and NBA uh, basketball. What's your favorite team? Uh, I I like Thunder Thunder <laughs> team, but my favorite player is is Durant. But Kevin I'm, Durant. I'm a little bit you know <laughs> confusing. <laughs> All right, great. And uh, you must have enjoyed winning the the Challenger tournament here in Shanghai. Yeah. Yeah, that that's great experience. After I long way from American to Chengdu, I'm just thinking, I do what what I can do, and I try to be focused. I try to play hard, running on the court. Yeah. With Shanghai underway, we also managed to catch up with another young Asian star, inspiring people both on and off the court. 
Tennis is my best opportunity to survive in normal society. Potential, it's Ducky Lee that a lot of people have been touting. I am a deaf person. I don't want to be treated differently. I want to develop and be the best in the world. That is my dream. Ducky Lee is without doubt one of the brightest talents in Asian tennis. Like every young player, he's overcome hurdles to get this far, and he also continues to battle the odds. I realised I was deaf when I was six years old. At first I was shocked because I was different than other people. Ducky's mother, Mija Park, coach Kyute Im and cousin and training partner Chung Hyo-oh. Ducky can communicate with everyone without the use of sign language. I didn't want him to have to rely on a sign language interpreter. Reading lips is a way of communicating with normal people, so it's important to Ducky. I learned how to read lips, mostly from my mother. We keep in touch to the, you know, look at the mouse, each other, and then uh, we, you know, sometimes we lot uh, on the paper, and then we text the, uh, the cell phone too. I can understand his speak Korean, and he can read my lip motion. I think it's much better than other people because we are grow up together. Backed by his support team and family, Ducky's talent is being given every chance to shine. But some factors on a tennis court are still outside of his control. During the match, I always have a hard time communicating with the umpires. Umpires say something to Ducky, but he can hear, and then he try to keep ask to the umpire, but. Uh, they, you know, they not exactly understanding each other. There's no doubt that he understands just how to excel between the tram lines, though, and he's determined to continue his incredible journey. I have to focus on the ball and where the opponent hits the ball because I cannot hear. He's a good, smart player in the, during the matches. He knows exactly what his weak point. His biggest weapon is uh, mentality, he's so strong. Ducky's agent, Dong Yong Lee. Ducky can give kind of you know, hoping message and you know, inspiration to you know, those people that you know, they don't have to you know, give up. And if they really you know, want something and if they keep trying hard, you know, they can go you know, even higher than Ducky. No words can express how thankful I am that he has continued to progress and grow. I will always support him. His personality is so fast. He doesn't matter about his death. I was told I couldn't be a great player because I was deaf. It made me want to quit tennis, but at the same time, I wanted to prove them wrong.
On the court, the big guns were blazing. If the US Open had failed to conjure a Nadal-Federer showpiece, Shanghai succeeded. 15-0, Federer serves out wide. Very deep return from Nadal, but great reactions from Federer on the forehand. The inside-out forehand from Federer, the spinning forehand from Nadal. It sits up really high, another one from Nadal. High at shoulder height, and it's pushed back on the backhand down the line from Federer. It goes cross-court with the forehand. Now backhand from Federer down the line to the backhand cross-court. Deep on the line oh. from Nadal, but a winner from Roger Federer. 21 minutes played, 40 love. It's <laughs> another ace, listen to that crowd. Three aces in one game, 50-second service hold to love for Roger Federer. Well, it's just so exciting to see it. Federer so down the centre and it's an ace. That is the perfect way to finish off a pretty perfect set for the world number two. 6-4 in 35 minutes and Roger Federer is a set away from his second Shanghai Rolex Masters title. Talking through this match, feeling every point of this match as Nadal runs around the backhand and goes off for him, but it drops short and Federer hits the line and Federer comes in for a backhand volley. And what a backhand volley from Roger Federer! Incredible control at full stretch there, Federer. As Nadal serves deep into the forehand of Federer, pulls out a cross-court forehand and lovely and deep from Nadal, and then switches the ball and goes cross-court forehand. The slice up the line from Federer, the backhand down the line from Nadal. He comes in on the overhead, he hits the overhead, but he nets the overhead. It sums up Rafa Nadal's day, and it means that Roger Federer has three championship points. Championship point number two for the world number two, Roger Federer. 15-40, Nadal serves down the centre, stretch on the backhand, the off-forehand into the net, and that is it! A flawless performance from Roger Federer seals Shanghai Masters title number two, his 94th career title, his 27th Masters title, and his fourth win of 2017 out of four against world number one, Rafa Nadal. Federer, straight set, 6-4-6-3. Well, many congratulations. A second Shanghai title. It's now five in a row as well against Rafa, and you did it in quite some style out there this evening. Yeah, things went really well for me. Uh, from the start, uh, I felt it. Uh, had great rhythm off the baseline, my serve was working and then was able to mix it up as, uh, as I wanted to and then the second set was, you know, again a good start to the second set, uh, was able to keep Raf on the defensive and then also sometimes pull back and let him make an error of his own, so uh, um, it's a great perfect match for me really, I'm, I'm shocked how, how good it went this week because I really played, oh, I felt good really from the first match so I think it really does pay off when you show up to an event really early, which I did. I already arrived on Thursday here before my Wednesday match, and that's usually what I do before a slam. So it's nice to see that it actually does pay off, and, and I'm, I'm just so, so happy that it went so well. Federer and Nadal both assured of their places at the NITO ATP Finals in London. And ending the Asian swing, there were still lots of players in contention for the O2, including Frenchman Lucas Puy, who would take another giant career leap forward with a first 500 title in Vienna. As he serves, first serve going into the net. As he prepares a second serve, backhand slice there from Songa. Well long, and Luca Pui has done it. His third title in 2017, his first win over Drew Wilfred Songa in his third attempt, and that was in a short performance today, getting the job done, 6-1, 6-4. Meanwhile, in Basel, Federer was eyeing up an eighth title. He serves out wide, forehand reply, goes long! Arms aloft, it's Roger Federer who reigns again in his hometown. Basel belongs to him for the eighth time.
After Vienna and Basel came the final ATP Masters 1000 of the year, the Rolex Paris Masters. Nadal, Federer, Zverev, Team, Chilich and Dimitrov with their places in London already confirmed. Pablo Carreño Busta and David Goffin were next in line, but a whole host of other challenges dramatically fell by the wayside. Goffin did still clinch the seventh spot when Puy lost, leaving one place still up for grabs. Also in Paris, Rafael Nadal was confirmed as the year-end number one. Very important thing for me. You know? uh, after all the things that happened the uh, last couple of years, uh, be able to be in that position and uh, receive the trophy like a world number one at the end of the of the year uh, is something that's uh, going to mean a lot to me when that happens in London. No? So uh, very happy for that. And um, yeah, difficult to describe, but uh, for sure it's a, it's, a, it's a great feeling. Other than the race to London, perhaps the most intriguing subplot in Paris was the rise and rise of Philip Krajinovic, a multiple ATP Challenger title winner who'd come all the way through qualifying to beat American John Isner, ending his hopes of reaching London. En route to the final, I spoke with him and his proud coach, Petar Popovic. Yeah, that was the goal at the beginning of the year, to play a lot of challenges, uh, to pick up the points and uh, to be ready for the next year. My goal was to break top 100 uh, and then uh, for the next year to be main draw everywhere. I did it. And now it's time to play all ATPs. Uh, of course, I won so many matches. I won five titles, played five finals, five titles. Um, didn't lose a set, I think, in those tournaments. So for me, it's an amazing year and it's not finished yet. Because it must be nice to be healthy. I mean, you turned pro nine years ago, uh, but then effectively you, you rebooted your career, didn't you? Because you, you had the injury in 2011, you had a shoulder surgery. How difficult was it to come back from that? It was difficult. I had a great junior career and then all of a sudden I had uh, surgery on my arm, took a couple of years to come back, then I break top 100 a couple of years ago, then again I had a problem with the wrist, they couldn't play for, for, for long and now finally I'm healthy, playing, happy and everything is going well. So now that you are healthy, what's the what's the future hold? What's the potential? How high can you go? I, I don't like to say that. You know, I go step by step. For me to be healthy and just to play, compete with those guys, and then you never know, you know. I guess everybody wants to be the best, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to play, and then we'll see, you know. I'm happy to be on the court and compete with those guys. So what what does the off-season have in store? You're working with your coach, Peter Popovich, of course. Um, what kind of uh, Philip are we going to see when you come back for the new season? Uh, for, sure, for sure, it'll be stronger. I, I will work on that. I will work on a couple to be, you know, to be more aggressive. And uh, I think I'm just going to keep working. That's, that's my goal. So where a lot of people will be surprised by what Philip's doing, you perhaps not so surprised. I'm really zero surprised. <laughs> like... Uh, I know Philip since a very long time, let's say 10 years, because we are from the same region on, of Serbia, north, of, north part of Serbia. So I was always knew that he had a great talent. He showed that when he was 16, 17. Then he has a few problems with the injuries, and he didn't have system for the games. He's an incredibly talented player, and I knew that if he keeps seriously, he works hard, and uh, with a good vision, he can be like really, really big one. Yeah, given how much he really had to restart his whole career, you must be very proud of the way he's, uh, the way he's playing. 
I'm incredibly proud of him and yeah and what we did like only in last four months was uh, incredible like even that he lost few matches in semi-finals of challenger we was he was working hard he was believing and he, he believed he helped me a lot because he believed in me a lot so and I, I forget the number. I think it's something like 47 wins in challenges this year and five titles in challenges. He's really the poster boy for, you know, playing challenges to build your confidence and get back onto the tour, isn't he? Yeah, but he needed to play challenges because in start of the year, maybe he was 240. Or, and uh, so he was even playing future, future level at the beginning. And then, uh, then he won five titles, which is really amazing. I don't know if somebody did it before, but last two titles, I think he lost like 34 games. So he was losing three games per match. So he showed to everybody that he had at least top 20 potential. Now that he's back, he's playing himself into all kinds of draws for next season as well. How, how high do you think Philip can go? Okay, but even when he was one uh, one fourth in the world, like media was asking me what's his potential in in our country in Serbia, and I was telling top twenty, and for them was they thought I was crazy. So to get top fifty, and then he will be main draw in all the Masters, and then every win is like forty five points, and he don't have really points to defend next first six months, I think, of the season. So we don't really fix. He can go like really high. He proved it against Query yesterday because that's the type of player that he hates to play and uh, he proved me that we'll be not good if we put limitation. We are proud, and but I hope he will not stop there. Krajinovic winning plenty of admirers in Paris, like another man through to his maiden 1000 final, Jack Sock. And for the American, there were two giant prizes at stake. Second serve, Krajinovic. Match point, championship point, Jack Sock, Krajinovic serves. It's a deep looping serve, it's a big forehand return, it's a big backhand, it is too big! And Jack Sock is on the ground, flat on the back, he cannot believe it. Sock wins the biggest title of his career, he becomes the top 10 player, he takes his place at the World Tour Finals, he will end the year as the top ranked American. Jack Sock comes through in just under two hours, 5-7-6-4-6-1. At the start of his week in the French capital, Jack Sock hadn't even realised London was a possibility. And now there he was, the eighth and final player at the NITO ATP Finals at London's O2. A fairy tale story by any standards and a fitting climax to the most extraordinary Masters 1000 season. And you can relive the best of the O2 by going to our iTunes page and downloading programmes 31 and 32, looking back on the NITO ATP Finals. And while you're there, why not relive the fortunes of the eight young players who trialled some potentially game-changing innovations at the ATP Next Gen Finals in Milan. That's it for this year. Thanks for joining us on ATP Tennis Radio throughout the season. I'm Seb Lozier. Next week, I'll be looking ahead to 2018 and a brand new ATP World Tour season in the company of Miles McLagan and Naomi Cavaday, neither shy of sharing an opinion. I hope you can join us then.